Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this week's show, the Universal Angry Mouse. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Pat Burnell and Robert Dalrymple, who will discuss tsunami warning systems. Also, we'll find out how long a penguin lives. So stay tuned for all of this, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And once again, I guess that makes me Charles Lee, delivering the truth of the nation via radio. Setting America free. <laughs> for all of our allies. So how much do you believe in freedom, Charles? Do you feel guilty when you chuck that uh, disposable cup out the uh, window when you're driving down I-5? Only if it's filled with urine. <laughs> there actually might be a reason to feel less guilty about dumping or used cups into the freeway. Are they setting up trash bins along the way where you can attempt to hit them at 60 miles an hour? Actually, even easier. They're going to become biodegradable. So conventional cups, they have a petroleum coating on it, which you use to hold you know, cold or warmer water from uh, dissolving to the paper. And a new type of polymer based on cornstarch is biodegradable. It's manufactured by a um, seroplast, and it's probably going to be in many more uh, disposal cups around the country now. Okay, I mean, they're already making most of the drinks out of high fructose corn syrup, so now <laughs> we're just getting every little bit of the corn into our diet. I believe in corn. Yeah, can we eat the cups if we're hungry? I don't see why not. It's all uh, made from natural products, right? All right. Can you kill a man with a cup? That could be a harder one. All right. But it turns out McDonald's is also very interested in this technology, and soon all their boxes, those uh, clamshell boxes, they're going to require the adhesives using them to be made out of this nanoparticle, which is also based on cornstarch. I thought they were moving away from the boxes into just more paper wrap. Anytime you have a petroleum-based products, you can place it with a corn. It's Bio-diesel. all getting corny, I guess. Corn is God's gift to man. So I guess if anyone's interested, uh, just uh, walk into McDonald's one of these days, and soon uh, everything will be uh, biodegradable. Or, or do yourself a favor and don't walk into McDonald's, and uh, you'll be a lot healthier. <laughs> All right, well, I only mentioned that McDonald's comment because it turns out that your genes may have a lot to do with how lean and fit you are. So uh, it's not just diet and exercise. It's a combination of all these things, obviously. Uh-huh. I guess genes do play an important factor. Right. And in particular, a gene for a receptor for a compound called orexin A. Oh, really? So uh, research is led by uh, neuroscientist Catherine Kotz at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center and the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis has uh, recently discovered that mice who are very lean have this kind of fidgeting behavior. Groom themselves, they wander around. Nervous. They're very nervous, yeah. But at the same time, whenever they eat, they wind up being quite lean. Uh-huh. Whereas obese mice seem to have a more docile. And the difference appears to be a correlation between their fidgeting behavior and the number of receptors they have for this orexin A compound. So the lean mice have more of this orexin A, and apparently that promotes both their feeding behavior as well as their fidgeting behavior. This fidgeting behavior, I mean, that's, I guess, based on the nervous system, so I presume that these mice, their brains are over 
reacting to regular stimulus or they're just hyper all the time, right? Yeah, that's the implication is that the mice with more Rexin A have a greater propensity to be more spontaneously active. Mm -hmm. So presumably in humans, these would be people that would more likely just go out and start exercising or doing things. Right. And as a result, also the same compound regulates their feeding behavior. So they're also eating appropriately as well. So there you go, another important compound in standing your, your diet. So imagine taking this as a, for losing weight, you'd be uh, getting nervousness in return. Huh? Well, <laughs> if you don't mind attention deficit or hyperactivity <laughs> disorder, then fine. Maybe McDonald's can put it in their fries. I don't know. But one thing, of course, is that it, the difference is in the number of receptors and not mm-hmm. necessarily the amount of the compound. I see. So your responsiveness to it is, of course, just due to how many receptors you have. Right. All right. So anyway, this is very fascinating work. Again, published in a recent edition of Science. So, Charles, how's your temper? Does it make you stronger? <laughs> it actually makes me beat up roommates with golf clubs, that kind of thing. <laughs> Do you breathe better, though, when you're angry? I haven't noticed. <laughs> I'm too busy pulling the golf club out of people's heads to notice. <laughs> well, anger numbs any kind of pain you have or uh, yeah, of. <laughs> It also leads to fear, and fear leads to suffering. Such is life. So, in a study carried with 670 men, it turns out that people who are hostile or very angry have worse capacity for their lungs. They have a faster decline in their lung power. But I imagine this is because of a flight-or-fight response that you want to just have quick breaths so that you're getting rapid oxygen. Well, that's the short-term effect, but we're talking on the long-term scale. The people whose personalities are more type A, they tend to have lower lung capacity, and the amount of air that they can breathe in or force out of their lungs in one second is actually a lot less. Hmm. So does this imply that if they start breathing better, that they can change their outlook on life? Well, Sing roses? Know, that's what these yogis might claim, but the, there is a correlation between mm. uh, lung capacity and personality, or especially the negative types. So, you know, this is just one more evidence that negative emotions are bad for your health. Right. So if you meet somebody and they're breathing really shallow, watch out. Tell them to breathe. Their fuse ready to blow. So this was carried out by Dr. Paul Lehrer at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey, and it was published in for an interesting journal, Thorax. All right, well, take a deep breath for this one. It turns out the universe is a little older than we thought. Damn, I'm going to hold my breath for that one. Don't hold it too long, because the evidence from which this is based is actually based only on one star. One star to rule them all, huh? <laughs> uh, so an N of one, that's always usually pretty good in science, but it passes in astronomy. So a group of researchers led by Alces Bonanos of the Carnegie Institution of Washington in D.C. there has observed what's called a so-called eclipsing binary star in the Triangulum Galaxy. That sounds like a hot vacation spot. (laughs) Apparently it's quite hot, but they've used the changing brightness of the stars as they orbit around each other to determine their relative distance. Okay. Using their new method, they've found that it's about 3 million light years away, which is about 15% more distance than the generally accepted value of 2.6 million. Uh-huh. Since the age of the universe is largely calculated based on these distances of galaxies, right. that pretty much bumps up the age of the universe from 13.7 to about 15.7 billion years old. A couple billion years, Couple, huh? Yeah, about two billion years there. <laughs> uh, but what's yeah, a couple billion in there? It's like a chump change, right? <laughs> yeah. But again, according to physicists like Edward Guinan, astrophysicist at, at Villanova University, he says, you know, the method's good, the group is good, they did a good job, but it's just one star. So they're <laughs> going to need more examples, and it might change if they get more... So, again, very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of the Astrophysical Journal. And that's all for a current look at the current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, 
David Macularry joins us to talk about the tsunami warning system with our guests. So stay tuned. back to Perfect Rocks. Well, joining us right now is David McLary narrating a story I've written with the Voice of America this summer. Uh, David? Tsunamis cannot be prevented, but ample warning can save lives. Unfortunately, that was not the case for 230,000 people who were swept away in the 2004 Indian Ocean Wave. The catastrophe prompted the UN Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission to establish a tsunami warning system in this region. Their goal is to build a network of ocean sensors and to establish a regional alert center that sends timely warnings of approaching tsunamis to area nations. A scientist with the commission, Ulrich Wolf, says so far only some of the sensors are in place. In the absence of a regional command center, they relay signals about water level, ground movements, and other data to existing centers in the Pacific Ocean, which send alerts back to governments in the region. We do have an interim system in place, which essentially uh, has got 26 new tight gauges, about 30 new seismic stations in the Indian Ocean, which all deliver their data real-time to the Hawaii Pacific Tsunami Warning Center and the Japanese Tsunami Warning Center, and they provide their alerts within 10 to 20 minutes to the Indian Ocean region. Although the system began operating at the end of June, several hundred Indonesians were killed by the Java tsunami in July. The detection system worked successfully, but the public did not receive the alerts in time. Wolf says that relaying the warning from central governments to their people remains a major challenge. The technical side is quite easy to install because this is just technology we know. So once the warning shows up in a national warning center in a country, the difficult part is for a country to set up an internal civil defense system to get the warnings to the endangered areas and to the last mile. Warning systems are only one of the important components for surviving tsunamis. Civil engineer Robert Dalrymple at Johns Hopkins University adds that evacuation systems are also needed. Parts of Thailand are very, very flat, and so they need to be able to climb up into buildings. And people need places of refuge when these uh, waves come in to shore. Ulrich Wolf says the other challenge is to coordinate data among the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission's member countries. 
Thailand, Malaysia, and India have their own warning centers, but cultural differences have prevented them from deciding on a regional warning center, which could shorten alert response to within minutes of the original earthquake or other undersea land movement that sets a tsunami off. The essential um, needs are, for example, a real-time data flow and data availability between all the countries. So all nations should be able to see all data coming in online. And it's not really working, actually. Officials from the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission's member states met this week in Bali, but could not agree on which nation would host the regional Indian Ocean Tsunami Monitoring Center. Instead, they renewed commitment to improve communications within their own countries. An integrated system is at least three years away. Indonesia has promised to install alert systems in vulnerable areas and to assign 75 seaports that would send signals of possible seismic events. David McAlary, VOA News, Washington. And that was David McAlary talking to Robert Dalrymple of Johns Hopkins University and Patricio Burnell from the UN. And in another study, nighttime flying can contribute to global warming. David McAlary joins us again. Cars are not the only form of transportation that contribute to global warming. Researchers say jets leave behind condensation trails that also have an impact. Much like high-altitude clouds, these contrails of tiny ice crystals trap heat from the Earth's surface preventing it from radiating into space. The contrails also have a cooling effect during daytime because they reflect some of the sun's rays. Although these are opposite effects, the warming is the stronger one. British scientists led by Nicola Stuber of the University of Reading sought to understand the impact of this phenomenon by analyzing northern hemisphere flight maps and weather balloon data. Stuber reports in the journal Nature that the time and season of flights affect contrail behavior. Their impact is greater at night and in winter because the opposite cooling effect is present only when the sun is up. We discovered that flights during the night time are responsible for at least 60% of the climate warming associated with contrails over the UK. That's despite the fact that they only amount to 25% of the daily total of flights. And the second thing we found is that flights between December and February cause about half the climate warming associated with contrails over the UK. And so we get one half of the climate effect from just one quarter of the year and actually less than a quarter of the annual air traffic. Stuber says that contrails make up less than 5% of the overall global warming scientists say is caused by humans. Nevertheless, with aviation volume increasing worldwide, she says the effects of contrails should not be ignored. Stuber concedes that restricting flights in the winter is unrealistic, but points out that limiting night travel would minimize their impact on warming. Rescheduling flights would certainly be one measure to think about if policymakers decided to reduce aviation-induced climate change. It's not the only measure we could do. You could actually try to avoid forming contrails. So I think it's a combination of different measures, but rescheduling flights would have an impact, really. These measures could include charting flight paths below contrail-forming regions and designing aircraft that eliminate contrails. David McAlary, VOA News, Washington. Well, thanks a lot, David. And those are two pieces produced at The Voice of America. This is Berkeley Grox. You're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. 
In a few moments, Patricia Schultz joins us to talk about a thousand places to visit before you die. So stay right there. Back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, if the spirit of science is about exploration, then traveling must be a science. Well, on the somewhat off the beaten track segment, we have a very special guest, Patricia Schultz, who tells us about her book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Uh, Ms. Schultz, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So, first of all, um, yeah, could you tell us what was your inspiration behind this book and um, have you actually visited it all 1,000 places? Uh, you know, the inspiration was uh, came from a, a lifetime of travel. It took me eight years to write the book, but in fact, it's the whole lifetime since ever I can remember when I was traveling. And then the many, many, many years uh, that I wrote travel guides professionally. So travel has always played an enormous role in my life. And whereas with the travel guides, I was uh, called upon to specialize and kind of explore in depth a particular city or region or area of the world. The beauty of this book was that I was able to kind of draw it all together and put between two covers uh, not a particular kind of travel, but just travel around the world and to all different kinds of sites and events and festivals and restaurants and, you know, really something that reflected what interests me in travel. And um, the the $64 million question, which um, people invariably want to know and understandably so, is um, if I've been to all of these places, um, I think I'd need to be uh, 300 years old in order to answer that in the affirmative. So no, I haven't, but I think 80% probably is a realistic estimate of the places in this book that I've seen. You know, I'm still checking them off. I'm, I'm still insatiably traveling and going and, and exploring. And surely there must be at least another thousand places that you missed or some readers have sent in comments that uh, you should visit. Uh, did you get any other suggestions? Well, yeah, and it's funny that there were people, I'm glad to say not many, but it wasn't infrequent that people would say to me, how will you ever reach a thousand, you know, how will you ever come, a, come across a thousand places? And I thought, how will I ever keep it down to just 1,000? You know, how, we had to scale back and merge and try to accommodate as much as we could within the framework of a thousand 
uh, destinations because, like you said, it's you know to think that these are the only thousand places in the world that are worth seeing is almost you know almost makes me laugh because the more you see, the more you realize there's so very much to see, and a thousand places. Uh, maybe for New York City, <laughs> but to think that the whole world can be rounded up in a thousand destinations just isn't um, very realistic. And in fact, with the success of this first book, I immediately set to writing a kind of sister book, which is A Thousand Places to See in the USA and Canada Before You Die. And that somehow seemed much more manageable, even though the, the, our country and Canada are friendly neighbors to the north is so vast and its possibilities endless. But as opposed to kind of embracing the world, I somehow now had a you know, an isolated destination that was easier for me to, to attack. Well you certainly have a fascinating uh, career as a travel writer. How how do you get into that and you know, do you have any advice for people who, you know, love to travel and wanna you know, it's, about it. I've got one of those dream jobs that everybody wants, but it took me, it's not at all uh, easy for the very simple fact that everybody wants to do it. So the competition is stiff. Um, everybody's qualified because all you need to be is uh, somebody with a lot of free time and the uh, inclination to go uh, at someone's whim to work an awful lot for extremely little money and um, be ready to then come home and work all over again as they rewrite with queries and questions. And so, you know, you, you come out making like three cents an, an hour if you're lucky. But it's all about, you know, it's one of those jobs where you follow your passion and you follow your heart. And the reason I was successful, I maintain, is because I stuck it out. You know, as the years went by, everybody was, like, falling by the wayside as they just couldn't make it. You know, they, there was rent to pay. There were kids suddenly to start caring for and, and you know, bills and mortgages and obligations and I just kept going. You need to be very creative. You know, you get one assignment and you make ten out of it. Or, you know, you sleep on a lot of friends' couches. And uh, it's not an easy job, but I can't imagine ever having done anything else. And the hardships were hardly hardships. When you love so much something that occupies your every waking hour, you maintain your enthusiasm and your drive and your ambition because you just enjoy it so very much. Well, Thanks. thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. And we were just talking to Patricia Schultz, author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Her book is now available at bookstores around the country and online on Amazon and Barnes & Nobles. So check it out. And finally, before we sign off, a quick announcement from Robert Bullock of the Asia Society on this coming weekend's Taiwan Film Festival. Robert? Well, uh, for, first of all, it's um, uh, going to show uh, not only at Berkeley, but uh, at Stanford University of Washington and Brigham Young. Uh, and it started out as an all-documentary project, but then we thought it would be be um, interesting and uh, would help broaden the appeal by pairing the documentaries we were interested in with um, feature films that uh, explore some of the same topics or, or themes. Uh, and uh, we're screening uh, eight of these films uh, at, at Berkeley. 
Great. And um, could you tell us, like, what kind of themes they touch upon? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, for, first of all, I should say that um, uh, you, as, as, as great as, as people like Ang Lee and Edward Young uh, and Ho Shao Shen are, you, you won't find them at this festival. We're really trying to focus more on younger, up-and-coming uh, filmmakers whose, whose works are, are virtually impossible to see in the U.S. I mean, you know how, how hard it is to see foreign cinema in, in, in general, but that's especially so for, for films from Taiwan. And um, uh, the films that we're showing at Berkeley uh, really are exploring a, a wide range of themes. Uh, we have a, a couple films looking at um, Taiwan's buried past uh, during the Japanese colonial period and uh, the Guomindang rule, you know, that until democratization was, was virtually impossible to talk about uh, in, um, in public in, in Taiwan. Uh, we have several films looking at uh, Taiwan's uh, conflicted relation with, uh, with mainland China, um, a couple films that look at uh, women, gender, and sexuality, and then uh, another pair of films that really focus on youth, urban culture, popular culture in, in contemporary Taiwan. I, mean, I get the impression that a lot yeah. of these independent filmmakers are um, struggling since funding for these types of projects. It's hard to come by. Um, yeah, what has been the right. recent trend? Are they uh, is there a resurgence in the independent filmmaking? Uh, well, in, in the documentary world, absolutely. And one of the great things about documentaries is that you know you can you can shoot them on uh, relatively cheap cameras, edit on uh, Final Cut Pro, you know, for which you just need a, a Macintosh. Um, and so there's been a real explosion of films there. But the uh, the, the bigger budget feature films, um, well, I'd just like to encourage people. To, to come out and, and check out the, the films. Uh, they're all free. Uh, we'll have a, uh, a reception the opening night, so free food. All right. Well, Mr. Volk, thanks so much for joining us. Mm, thanks very much, Frank. All right. Uh, for those of you interested in the festival, it starts this Friday here on campus at UC Berkeley. And Chili Willy the Penguin here with the answer to last week's question of the week, how do we live? Hmm. It looks like we only live 15 to 20 years, and that's how long we can enjoy our ice cubes. All right, all right, all right then, Chilly Willy. It's the incredible Mr. Limpet looking around trying to figure out why do fish spawn? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, limp it on over at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might be a little more fertile. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.